grateful that we can come together as your people and rest in you. Sit at your feet and under your word. Come to your table and be ever so reminded that we are loved by you and underneath of the everlasting arms. I pray, Lord, as we return to 1 Peter this winter and spring, that you would do a wonderful work in each and every one of our hearts. And that the true love that we speak of today would show forth through our lives. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friend David Helm, who's the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in the Hyde Park section of Chicago and head of the Simeon Trust, uh, whose dad uh, was an assistant coach for Lenny Wilkins for the Cleveland Cavaliers back in the day. They share fondly the stories of coaching with Lenny and the shot. They couldn't stop Jordan that year. But uh, David Helm, as, as a young boy, his dad was the head basketball coach at Judson College in Illinois. And David remembers standing at the gym where his dad coached and seeing a student go down to the Fox River, which was frozen, chipping out the ice, that the ducks could swim, and he would feed the ducks. And every day during the semester, as the waters, you know, as the ice melted and river flowed, he kept feeding the ducks. So every day, the ducks would come as this guy came. And David, as a young boy, said, what gives? Why does he do this? David's dad found out this guy's story and told him the story. He said, son, this man has just returned from Vietnam. The story is about the ducks who saved his life. His unit had been ambushed. Everybody had been killed except this guy who had played possum and lied in the marshes. As the North Vietnamese came by, starting to shoot all the American soldiers to make sure they were dead. They were working their ways toward him. As they got closer and closer, all of a sudden, a big covey of ducks flew over. And the North Vietnamese started to shoot at the ducks instead of the American soldiers. And there were so many of them, it distracted them that they figured that this would be a feast. So they went and they went away and just started collecting ducks and didn't worry about the rest of the dead, supposedly. That's how the man by the river escaped. And now he has a special love for ducks. He loves because he lives. Well, today's passage in 1 Peter conveys a similar call upon all who follow Christ. I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Or in the back of your bulletins, you'll see it listed there. When Peter says, having purified our souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, a sincere and earnest love, a life given over to the genuine concern and care of others, is the natural result of a person who's born again. To highlight the command in the text, simply notice the phrase, love one another earnestly. And to see why we love that way 
simply notice, since you've been born again. And to put the force of Peter's thought as clearly as possible, when you get a fresh start on life, love should happen. So today, and through Lent, we're going to go through this letter of 1 Peter, where we last were back in late October. Quick review. This letter has been written to the elect churches in the elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are places in the Roman Empire where the Christians are beginning to feel what it's like to live under the Roman boot. We believe this is about the time Nero became emperor. And so they had to learn to live as followers of Christ under such oppression. And so I've entitled this series, Living in a Strange World, because when you follow Christ, the world becomes strange to you and we become strange to the world. We're called to be faithful as disciples, and this is one of the best books on making disciples right from the Bible. And so what we're going to do is resume today on verse 22. We're going to walk through the rest of the letter this year. And what we see today are, number one, the signs of a Christian life. Two, we recognize the sh how short life is. And then three, we see what it looks like in the life of a believer. Exactly. All right, so let's look at it. First, the signs of the Christian life. The sign of the Christian life is love. We heard that. And according to the text, our love is to be a true love, a sincere, genuine, authentic love, earnest. As Peter says, it must come from the heart. And we must give ourselves fully to us. Most of us don't have a difficulty understanding that idea. You know, the natural result of since I've been born again, I should love others. Uh, when someone gets a fresh start on life, love happens. The difficulty is looking at what Peter, unwrapping what Peter says next. Peter claims that love not only comes from being born again, it also comes through the imperishable word of God. Look at the intricate links that Peter puts forward in verse 22 and 23. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, but of a, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Figuring out exactly how sincere love is the natural consequence of God's imperishable word isn't easy. When we ask, why will we love, Peter responds with, we love because of the imperishable nature of God's word. Well, that's a head scratcher. <laughs> how exactly is sincere love the natural consequence of the living and abiding word of God? Well, let's go there. First, what does he use the word? It's an imperishable seed. What do we know about seeds? Seeds possess within themselves the power to bring forth life. An oak tree? Man, my oak tree dropped tons of acorns this year. I don't know about you, but I raked up acorns for six weeks. All right? And those acorns possess within them the power to bring forth life. In their essence, the sapling emerges because of all the necessary life-giving properties that are present in the seed from the very beginning. And so it is with God's word. Like a seed. The Bible is alive. It contains within itself everything necessary for life. 
In Desiring God, that great book by John Piper, he correlates this point, and he says, Consider the story of Little Bilney, an English reformer in 15, 1495. He had studied the law and outwardly was re very religious, but there was no life within him. Then he happened to receive a Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And here's what happened. Quote, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul. Oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward looking, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that immediately I felt a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leapt for joy. After this, the scriptures began to be more pleasant to me than honey or the honeycomb. It was simply the exposure to the word of God. He simply read one verse out of the word of God and life entered into his soul. That's what the word of God does. It contains within itself all the properties necessary for life. And that ought to revolutionize our understanding about the power of God's word to bring forth life. And life isn't the only natural result of God's word because Paul is arguing here that that life brings a life of love. How is it that the gospel brings forth both life and love? Isaiah 55 mentions it. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return here, but water the earth, making it bring forth the sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, the word has more intentions than merely giving life. It says, it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so what's the full intention of the word of God? Isn't it that he would be named known in all his fullness? God, we know, is love. Therefore, the imperishable seed not only gives us life as new creations, but gives us love for others. The activity of God's word brings life, and the full intention of God's word brings love. And all of this because within the word of God, we gain Jesus, who is both life and love. So the logic rests in this. God is life and God is love. Therefore, if God sent his word into our hearts to give us life, then we have tasted the fullness of it and we will manifest the fruit of his character. It's for this reason, Peter says, love one another earnestly since you've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Second point, he grounds this in reality and calls us to remember that life is short by quoting Isaiah 40. 
which Isaiah 40 comes on the heels of a prophecy said that his people would go into exile. God's people were in need of comfort in Isaiah 40. And Peter chose this portion of Isaiah to bring comfort to the exiled churches in these areas who are struggling and being persecuted. Verse 24 and 25, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this, is, this word is the good news that was preached to you. What, that's good news? Well, this is Peter's proof text to make his point. He has been arguing that God's word is eternal and capable of bringing forth life. And therefore, he brings the big gun of Isaiah to prove it. But this reference does more so. It contrasts our inability to live and love with that of God's ability to do both. <laughs> well, God's word may be eternal, our flesh is not. While we are temporal, he is not. We are here today and we're gone tomorrow. As Psalm 103, 16 reminds us after we're gone, this place will remember us no more. As a student at George Mason in the 80s, I was going to school with a bunch of very highly driven, highly educated people who were going to make their mark on the world. People are going to remember me forever. And so the GMU Christian Fellowship, because we huddled up once a week for lunch and we talked about ministering to the campus, how, how, do, you, how do you get the gospel out to such people that are just kind of arrogant? David Jones says, just remind them that nobody will remember them. So we would hear these things and somebody would say, you know, I'm, I'm going to be remembered forever. I'm going to build a business. Nah, nobody's remember you. What do you mean? I don't mean to cut down your goals. I think having goals is a good thing. But do you remember your great-grandfather's names? Who he was married to? Their children? You know, their parents? Where they lived? And all of a sudden, they could click. <laughs> we are here today. Gone tomorrow. John Wesley links the brevity of life to our need for the imperishable word. Wesley said, I'm a creature of a day. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. For in God's book we have found life, and through it we express love. And Peter wants us, Christians everywhere, to be a people knowing our lives are short, our task is urgent, and we're known for living lives that demonstrate love. Life is short. All flesh is like grass. Get about the business of growing up in the love of God in Christ. So therefore, he applies it. So what should we look like practically? And this is for all ages here, okay? No matter whether you're in middle school, high school, all the way up to senior citizenship. 
what does such a life look like? So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There, there's no sentimentality here, is there? He's just, he just laying it out there for us. You know, there is no sense that love is an entirely an emotional thing. Our growing up to salvation demands that it's known for putting away some things and longing for other things. The things we are to put away, if you noticed, put away, um, where'd it go, sorry, put away hypocrisy, malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Those things are decreating in others' lives are destroy relationships. In contrast, love builds others up. Love strengthens relationships. The profound theologian of the 20th century, Richard Niebuhr, stated it this way about love. Love is rejoicing over the existence of the beloved one. It is the desire that he be rather than not be. It is longing for his presence when he is absent. It is happiness in the thought of him. It is profound satisfaction over everything that makes him great and glorious. Love is gratitude. It is thankfulness for the existence of the beloved. It is the happy acceptance of everything that he gives without the jealous feeling. It is a gratitude that does not seek equality. It is wonder over the other's gift of himself and companionship. Love is reverence. It keeps its distance as it draws near. It does not seek to absorb the other in the self or want to be absorbed by it. It rejoices in the otherness of the other. It desires the beloved to be what he is and does not seek to refashion him into a replica of the self or to make him a means to the self's advancement. In all such love, there's an element of that holy fear which is not a form of flight, but rather deep respect for the otherness of the beloved and the profound unwillingness to violate his integrity. Finally, love is loyalty. It is the willingness to let the self be destroyed rather than the other cease to be. It is the commitment of the self by self-binding will to make the other great. What great phrases to describe what love looks like. Love rejoices over the other. It's thankful for the other. It reverently respects the other. It demonstrates loyalty for the other. You could say that our true love resembles a strong, healthy family. Peter intends for us to see it this way. Notice the familial terms that he uses. 2 verse 2, we are likened to newborn infants. That goes all the way back to verse 3 of chapter 1, which reminds us that we are born again. And in verse 22, we were called to relate to one another as brothers. The point being is Peter wants us to grow up into Christ as members of his family. He's longing for a church to be mature, adult-like, strong. Newborn infants are not to remain newborn infants. We all should be striving 
through love to grow up, for that is what God wants from us. The novelist John Ames, in his book Gilead, the main character, wonders about the age of maturity his son will be when they meet again in heaven. He's a little boy. His reflections put forward a powerful picture of what Peter desires for his church to grow up. John Ames wonders, sometimes, now, when you crawl into my lap and settle against me, and I feel that light, quick strength of your body and the weightiness of your head against me, when you're cold from playing in the sprinkler or warm from your bath at night, and you lie in my arms and fiddle with my beard and tell me what you've been thinking about, that is perfectly pleasant. And I imagine your child self finding me in heaven and jumping into my arms, and there's a great joy in that thought. But still, the other is better and more likely to be somewhere near the reality of the situation. I believe that the soul in paradise must be something nearer to perpetual, vigorous adulthood to any other state that we know. At least, that is my hope. I certainly don't mind if your mother finds me a strong young man. Isn't that great? May it be so for all of us, brothers and sisters. May we be known for our true, genuine, earnest love for the Lord and for one another here at Christ Church. May we grow up strong and vigorous here at Christ Church West Shore. For Christ commissioned the church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to baptize and go into the world to preach the good news that God's kingdom is here. You can't live a, such a life independently. There's no sense in which a professing Christian can justify not being part of an active part of a local church. What Peter is saying here is so countercultural. So therefore, you'll hear about me talk about it during the uh, announcements. We're starting to restart for the spring semester all of our little churches. It's coming. All right? Come on. Let's know the Lord together, grow in the Lord together, and serve the Lord together. For that's what Christians do. We grow in maturity. You will never be asked to read out loud. You will never be asked to pray out loud. Just come and be. Every group is open for everyone, number one. And number two, every group has expectations that we will, for a season, know the Lord, grow together, and serve the Lord together. So therefore, come, follow Jesus with us. And may we grow together up out of newborn infancy into mature, confident, solid, rock disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the life you've given us, Holy Spirit, and for your love. And as you... As your children, we pray that we might grow up in both. May your word be ever open before us, and may your love be ever growing within us. We pray there be an urgency in our lives about this call. That we would, we pray by the power at work within us, you might make us into mature family members of Christ Church. And followers of your son Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.